Hear the word of the Lord from Ecclesiastes 3. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been and that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? pray together. Uh, Father, as we um, dive into your word, we know that we need your spirit to, to receive it, to comprehend it, to understand it, to apply it. pray you would guide my preaching and guide everyone else's receiving and hearing uh, to the end that you are glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, one of um, one of the many things uh, that parenting has taught me, I won't share many of those things, but one of the many things that parenting has taught me is that life is full of seasons. Uh, with parenting in particular, uh, as soon as you think you have things figured out and you are managing things pretty well, along comes a new season, one that was unexpected, um, one you were probably warned about by your parents, uh, but it still takes you by surprise. It's it's like we are sailboats and we're doing pretty good in one direction and all of a sudden the wind changes and the sail shifts and then we have to figure out how to navigate a new uh, course. Uh, you feel like in parenting, okay, you get the infant stage down. Okay, we've got we've got the sleeping thing down. We've got the eating thing down. We've got a pretty good rhythm to our day. We know what life looks like. We know what we can do and we can't do. And then suddenly, that infant that remained so immobile in the same place that we left him or her is suddenly not there anymore. And they are mobile. And our lives are forever transformed from that point on, dramatically for several years. You begin to adjust to that season and suddenly, one day, they can speak coherently. And they seem to have an opinion. And that opinion seems to be always contrary to your opinion. And you get used to that stage and then they develop a sense of logic and the questions become more difficult, more complex, and just many. The questions are just many. And then they become teenagers and the conversations become weightier and at times scarier. Then the next thing you know, they're adults and so on and so forth. Okay, so many of you know these realities, you're living them right now, or you have lived through them at some point. About the time that you get kids figured out, they change, they mature, they move into the new, somewhat unexpected season. Even though we experience the seasons as kids ourselves and our parents are constantly reminding us and laughing at us, at times, because of how we are talking about the seasons we're walking through with our kids, and that there are endless books on all of the seasons we walk through, they still seem unexpected. All the seasons seem to contain a mix of physical and emotional realities, both good and bad, both rewarding and taxing. What we walk through, the, the journey of parenting, is really in a lot of ways, a microcosm of all of life. Because life is full of seasons. And each of those seasons is full of a lot of other stuff. And some of the seasons that we walk through are expected, while many, no matter what we do or how much we prepare or read or listen, we are often caught off guard by the newness of whatever season comes. I know it's been like 90 outside this weekend, and it certainly doesn't feel like fall is wanting to come to Alabama, but there were mornings earlier in the week, if you walked outside, it was it, it was cooler. And I don't know about you, I'd checked the weather, we'd actually talked about it at work the week before, just joking about, hey, it's had to build a fire on Monday morning or whenever it was, and so we knew it was coming, but I walked outside and I was still surprised by how cool it felt outside. So I was prepared but still surprised by what was there. And then it just vanished as weather in Alabama does. I do have a point in all of this, uh, and I'll get to it. Let me welcome you to week three of our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. It's week three, and we're in chapter three, as you just heard read. 
And according to verse 1 of this chapter, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. If you've been with us here the last couple of weeks or maybe listened to the sermons online, then you know that Ecclesiastes is a book that helps us to know how to live the good life. Okay, In the midst of a world that is messy and complicated and hard and often simply doesn't make sense, Ecclesiastes is a book that that faces that reality head on. I think the reason that so many people, Christians and non-Christians alike, enjoy this book is that it describes life as we feel it, as we observe it, as we discover it. But it doesn't just leave us with a description of how we feel life and observe life and discover life. It instructs us how to live in it. And as we get to chapter 3, we get a description of the seasons that life contains. While more importantly, we get a understanding of the God who is over these seasons while also receiving guidance for how we live in the midst of these seasons. I will freely admit this is an insufficient summary, but hopefully a helpful one. Uh, If I had to, and I didn't have to, but I chose to anyways, if I had to sum up what we're looking at today, I, I would put it this way. Life is full of seasons. God is sovereign and we are not over those seasons. Therefore, enjoy him and the seasons he has given you wherever you find yourself. Okay, that would be a summary. Okay, that wouldn't hit on everything in the chapter, but I think everything would fall under that in some way. Life is full of seasons. God is sovereign over those seasons. We are not. Therefore, enjoy him and the season he has you in currently. Here's what we're going to do with the remainder of our time in God's Word. Hopefully you have the book of Ecclesiastes open. As you heard read, going to attempt to cover the entirety of chapter 3. To do so, I'm going to use six headings this morning. Six headings that will summarize what we see in this chapter. Not necessarily six points, just six headings. You could use them as summaries of different truths in this book. Okay? So I don't know if it'll I don't know if this will really hit on everything, but this book is is there's a lot of repetition. So Lord willing, we'll get another opportunity if there's something here to say, hey, we didn't really spend enough time there. We have limited time and I tend to stretch the limited time that we have. So six headings today. You'll get them as we go. They'll be on the screens as well. First heading, the rhythmic design of God, the rhythmic design of God. So we come out of the gate with some poetry in the first eight verses, pretty uh, famous poem that's been used in a lot of forms, taken out of context a lot of times. Many of you probably heard the birds singing in the background when you were reading that text. And for the younger folks in the room, I'm not talking about birds on a tree. I'm talking about the folk rock band of the 60s. Apparently, you can take the first eight verses of this text and you can add three words to it and make a lot of money. Turn, turn, and turn. And you just mix that into the poem. God does the rest of the work and boom, you're famous and rich. It's a poetic masterpiece. It really is. Hence the popularity, even with non-Christians. So verse one seems to serve as a bit of the main point of the poem. For everything, there's a season and for a time for every matter under heaven. Uh, After this, the preacher, who's the author of the book, then gives 14 examples in pairs that seems to cover every area of life. 
And it's not that every individual would walk through every one of these pairs, but they pretty much cover every season that could exist in life. Okay, as we walk through life. So the preacher is observing that if you look at life as a whole, all of these things will probably show up in one way or another. The universe sort of has this flow and regularity to it. So each of these pairs are seen as polar opposites, extreme sides of the positions, and they're, they're put side by side. The, the very first one there, there is a time to be born and a time to die. That pretty much covers the entire scope of life, right? Wasn't anything before you were born, and there's not anything in terms of life on this earth after you die. So a lot obviously happens between those two events, between birth and life, which is a lot of what happens. It, all of that is laid out, I think, in the, the pairs that follow. And honestly, most of these pairs are pretty straightforward, not overly complex. To understand what some of them are saying, you kind of need to get into the context of the day. For instance, I'll give you an example. There's one there that says casting away stones. It talks about casting away stones. What does that mean? Well, it's likely a reference to preparing a field to be planted. Stones out there, you've got to get them out of the way. Okay, we probably do that in our day. You're going to make a baseball field. You're going to cast the stones out. You're going to make a garden. You're going to cast the stones out. So there's a time to get rid of stones, like prepping a field. And then there's a time to gather stones, like building a house, building a wall. For the most part, though, I think these are easy to understand. There's a time you plant a tree. There's a time you chop down a tree. There are times of war, times of peace. There are times of weeping, times of laughing. There are times to accumulate possessions and time to get rid of things. Verse 6, there's a time to keep and there's a time to cast away. That, that, That would be the verse for all the hoarders in the room. That verse, that's the garage sale verse. There is a time to cast some stuff away. Now, you may question a couple of these, like, is there really a time to kill? Is there really a time for war? Well, if you observe life, then the answer is yes, there is. Ecclesiastes here is not concerned with the ethical questions necessarily. These are not prescriptive. These are just observations of life as it is. And they could... They could refer to deserved capital punishment or just war. But that's not really the point. It's just what life contains. These are the seasons that exist in a fallen, broken world. The rhythmic design of the poem covers everything. It covers all of our existence. It covers all of our emotions. It covers all of our activities. He's grabbing up everything in life that makes up human life and putting it here. Now, kind of big picture at the poem, there are some things here that are really instructive for us. Not necessarily in the pairs that he gives us, but in in general, okay? So you think about, there's a list, there's some pairs here. In many parts of the Bible, when you have a list, there's a, there's a, there's sort of a logic to the order. However, you read this, you cannot come up with an order. There's a rhythm, but not an order. For instance, if you are... We're not a fan of the birds and you didn't have this text and you didn't have it in front of you. And I just started reading the poem and then I said, "Okay, you fill in the blank. If I read a pair and then let you guess what was next, it's likely you would never guess what came next because it's just there's just randomness to it. 
It's not a discernible order, not a logical order. We just sort of have to go along for the ride, which appears to be part of the point. These are seasons. These experiences, they are unpredictable, just like life is. So the randomness of the poem is instructive for us. It's not just describing the seasons in life, but it's hinting at how unpredictable these seasons actually are. Something else to note. The back and forth of the pairs is not always between good and bad. If you look at them, it's not as if you have good on one side and bad on the other. Sometimes either side could be good. I guess sometimes either side could be bad. And it's not always, well, bad's over here, good's over here, good's over here, and bad's over here. Here's the point of noting each of these features. If If you remember, Ecclesiastes falls in the category of wisdom literature. Like Proverbs, it's just meant to instruct us on how to live. How do we live in this world? Well, the setup of this poem helps us to see that there is wisdom in knowing that life contains seasons. There's wisdom in just knowing there are seasons and knowing that they are unpredictable. But there's also wisdom in knowing how to live in the midst of those seasons, how to navigate them. So since these pairs are somewhat unpredictable and it's not obvious In each pair, what is good and what is bad, and both sides could be good at the appropriate time, then wisdom means we need to know two things. That there are unpredictable seasons, and two, that we need more wisdom to know how to respond in each of those seasons. Okay? You need to know that there are seasons, and then in the context of a given season, you need to know how to live out life. Some blanks there, so I'll give you an example. Hopefully, clarify this. Take a second part of verse seven. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. Not a good thing or bad thing right there, right? Which one of those is good? Which one is bad? Depends. Depends. So how do we know what to do and when to do it? The answer is you don't automatically know. It takes wisdom. Okay. Wisdom says there's a time for silence and there's a time to speak. And then wisdom has to step in that season and figure out which time is it. I don't really know. I think I mentioned this, but maybe not. I probably should have looked back at my notes. But uh, teaching youth on Wednesday night, still not sure how I got signed up for that. Pray for our youth. But during our first meeting, I told the youth, among many things, that they are not wise. Okay? Said you, You are not wise. You may be smart. You may have a lot of knowledge, but you aren't wise. Okay? Wisdom in part is... Knowledge worked out in life, it's, it's knowledge and experience kind of meeting. Okay? You know, you know how I know that they aren't wise? Because they don't know yet when to keep silent and when to speak. Okay? They don't know that yet. This is just true of kids in general. So parents, please don't be surprised when your child says something that is entirely true, but at the most inappropriate time. You shouldn't be mad at them. That's not their fault. It's really not your fault either. They're just not wise enough to know. You have to help them along the way. Okay? I mean, how many adults in this room haven't figured that out yet? How many adults in here don't yet know when to be silent and when to speak? So there's wisdom both in knowing the season exists and in knowing how to navigate the season. Here's a key takeaway, and then we'll move on to the next heading. This poem needs to help us to recognize that what is now will not always be. So this 
poem helps us to recognize that what is now will not always be our circumstances will change. There's plenty of life experience in this body that can affirm and amen that reality. Your circumstances will change, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Sometimes it's just neutral. They just change. And it really didn't get better. It really didn't get worse. Part of our problem in navigating life effectively is we don't expect change. Or we expect it and we're surprised by it. And when it comes, we're just completely thrown off. Even if we knew it was coming, we're just completely rocked. And we tend to think sometimes if it's bad, then we're being punished. Or if it's good, we're being rewarded. And really the text would just say, it's just a season. It's just a season. What God is saying clearly here is life is made up of seasons. You don't know what's coming and when. You can't control what's coming, so don't be surprised by it. Accept these realities and you'll be in a much better place. One writer put it this way. He said, many of our frustrations rise from our blindness to the change of season or to the pain or joy of them. And we struggle to adjust our expectations. I heard this was it was kind of too funny not to share, but I heard one pastor. He was picking on the saying and I would I I was going to ask for a show of hands for whoever has the picture of the plaque in their uh, in their house. But I heard him picking on the saying, if God closes the door, he opens a window. Anybody just willing to admit, hey, I got that. I love that saying. It gets framed and plaqued. If God closes a door, he opens a window. You know the, the main issue with, with that? It's not true. Okay, it's, it's unbiblical. Sometime God closes a door and just says, sit there, be silent, and wait. That's what time it is. That's what season you are in. Pastor goes on. He thought the saying was actually cruel. And this is just more the funny side of it. He thought the saying was actually cruel. He's like, really? Why a window? God closed the door. He wants you to jump out the window and break your leg. That doesn't make any sense. So, all right, move on. Here's a good summary of this section. Uh, this is from Zach Eswine, who wrote a good book on Ecclesiastes. He says, it is this, as if the preacher says to us, as you travel out there in the world under the sun, remember this about your times. There are beginnings and endings, good and evils, things we choose and choices that we did not make but must deal with. We age. We face realities with relationships and necessities with work. We encounter varying human mood and activities. Such occasions await us all. In short, we enter an already established routine that we did not choose, but one that shapes how we live. It's that last part of the quote that I think helps transition to the next section. Next heading, the good providence of God. The good providence of God. So this poem points us to the rhythmic design of God. And it can seem cruel without this second point or second heading. Verse 9, he revisits a truth from the previous chapters. What gain has the worker from all his toil? The implied answer, nothing. Meaning, ultimately, there's nothing left over at the end of all your toil through all of these seasons. That can be both instructive and depressing by itself. It's instructive because it's telling us, again, do not try to squeeze something out of this life that it cannot give you. Don't squeeze something out of your job or your possessions or your friends or your spouse or your position, whatever. You cannot squeeze something out of it that's not ultimately there. But it's also depressing by itself. Okay? Seasons. All adds up to nothing. What's the point? Good news is, it's 
not by itself. Keep reading verse 10. I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And you take and you add to that what is said in verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor taken away from it. God has done it so the people so that people fear before him. There, there's there's some depth right there, but let me try and summarize it as best I can. This verse, those verses are pointing us to a God who is wise, who is eternal, who sees beginning from end, who is never caught by surprise and who makes everything beautiful in its time. The simple point is we may not be in control of the seasons of our life, but God is. We don't control the seasons that come and we don't really control life within the seasons, but God is in absolute control of it all. One writer gave a great illustration. He says this verse is like the seatbelt that will help you get through all the things you're going to go through in your life. All the things the teacher has listed in verses 1 through 8. You may not have control over the events of your life, but God does. As one old catechism puts it, God's holy, wise, and powerful providence governs all his creatures and all their actions. I love that. God's good providence is the seatbelt that you put on the ride of the seasons of life. God is not merely playing a game with his creation and having fun with us at our expense. He has not created a world without meaning and purpose and just left us to wander through these seasons, bumping into walls. God has designed all of this in such a way, verse 14 makes clear, so that we would fear him. There's purpose in every season so that we would fear him. To fear God in part means to remember who God is and to remember who we are in relation to him. It means in part reminding ourselves that God is sovereignly in control of all of life. And it means humbly coming to terms with our own inability to always understand things and really control nothing. In his book, Things of Earth, Joe Rigney urges Christians to embrace your creatureliness. Don't seek to be God. He's put eternity in our hearts. Basically, he he is hardwired human beings to think there's something bigger, something out there, something more. But he's not made us God. We are not God. Instead, as Rigney says, we are to embrace the glorious limitations and boundaries that God has placed on us as characters in his story. We are to remember, in short, that he is God and we are not But we're also to remember that he is good. He controls all things at all times in all places and he is good. He makes all things beautiful in its time. David Gibson, who I've referenced a few times in this journey, put it this way. In other words, because God lives forever and I don't, I can experience the several different times of my life knowing That they are a part of a bigger picture that I cannot see, but which is visible to a good and wise God who sees the whole picture as beautiful. Okay, I can experience the different seasons 
knowing that there is a bigger picture that I can't see, but there is a good and wise and all-powerful and loving God that sees the picture clearly. He painted the picture. There's an inherent exhortation here to trust the character of God. I think this is somewhat analogous to, to parenting. So parents are not God, so don't, don't go there. Okay. But they, you think about it, as parents, we have a fuller view of life than our kids do. And so we're helping to guide and to shepherd our kids. And kids don't all, they don't often get it. They don't often like it. They think it's mean at times. They think it's hard. They think we're wrong at times. But the parents know what's best. Okay, making assumptions here. If parents are of good character and wise in the Lord, the best thing the child can do is to trust and to follow. Trusting the parent knows what is best because the parent has a fuller view of life than they do. The same goes for us. If God is good, which he is, then we can trust him to be God and we can trust him in each season. In short, we can trust the good providence of God who makes things, make everything beautiful. He makes everything beautiful in its time. I'll pick on that saying again about God closing doors and opening windows. Here's an illustration from the life of a Canadian pastor. He said, I woke one morning barren of fruit, bereft of joy, short of daylight. I couldn't shake it off. I couldn't make, couldn't make a thing grow. He says, I saw a counselor, had people pray for me, I read books, I begged God, I even faked it. Nothing ended it. And then God gave me some insight. He didn't change my circumstances, he gave me some insight. This is winter. This is winter. It would end, in time, but not by my own doing. My responsibility was simply to know the season, to match my actions and inactions to it. It was to learn the slow hard discipline of waiting and trusting. Knowing the good providence of God doesn't necessarily make life easier, but it will make life more understandable. Next heading, the profound gift of God. The profound gift of God. Verse 12, I perceive there is nothing better for them to do than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. One writer put it well, he says, Ecclesiastes does not push the depressed over the edge, but rather gives the frustrated a foothold of joy in a puzzling world. The preacher declares a simple message of hope for the struggling. Enjoy life by fearing God, even when you cannot understand what's going on. We've already seen the same truth. We, we, we hinted at it. We looked ahead at it in chapter one. We saw it clearly in chapter two. We're going to see it again throughout this book, Life is a puzzling vapor, a fleeting enigma. We are not in control, and it's obvious even if we do everything to deny it. So what should we do in light of that? Be joyful. Eat and drink and take pleasure in what God has given us. Another one of those carpe diem, seize the day text. There is a, hopefully you know this, but there is a profound difference in what we might call Biblical carpe diem. Unlike how the world understands the notion, it's not a matter of self-fulfillment, but an expression of faith. 
Here's how one commentator put it. He said, it's not the greedy consumption of experiences and pleasures before oblivion consumes us. It is rather the patient and joyful embrace of daily life as it comes to us as a gift of God. Ecclesiastes walks this line of tension. In this chapter in particular, we have this tension between our finiteness and infinity, frustration and joy. Jason DeRoshi, pastor of uh, professor of Old Testament at Southern, summarizes the tension this way. He says, this is the goal of Ecclesiastes, that believers feeling the weight of the curse and the burden of life's enigmas would turn their eyes toward God, resting in his purposes and delighting whenever possible in his beautiful yet disfigured world. The point here is simple. It's just really hard to grasp. Okay, the. The events of life are beyond our control. They're not in our control. So enjoy God's gifts. Enjoy life even though it's uncertain. And even though you don't have the answers now and you may not get the answers, enjoy every day as a gift from God. That is a simple point, but it, it just takes so much to get it to click. Part of the point of what we saw in chapter 2 is that, again, we can't squeeze something out of God's gifts that they don't possess. Wisdom, pleasure, work, all that they entail, they can bring some satisfaction. They bring some enjoyment, but not ultimate satisfaction, not ultimate enjoyment. In short, they are good gifts, but lousy gods. Good gifts, but lousy gods. I heard someone say that if you... Blast the good gifts of God with the heat of ultimate expectations, you will ruin them. Like turning the oven up too much and cooking the cake too long, you will ruin it. If you blast the good gifts of God with the heat of ultimate expectations, you will ruin them. When you make a small pleasure central, it will not hold up. C.S. Lewis said, our Heavenly Father has provided many delightful inns for us along the journey. Inns, hotels. But he takes great care to see that we do not mistake them for home. So you start to stack all of this together. It says there's a time for everything. So don't be surprised. Be prepared for good. Be prepared for bad. Realize you're not in control. You never were. You never will be. Realize that God is in control and always will be. As Luther said, it is none of our work to steer the course of providence or direct its motion, but submit quietly to him who does. You stack it together. Okay, there is a king who reigns over all and it's not you and it's not me. You got to realize that and then realize that you have questions, questions you may never get answers to. You have eternity in your hearts and that creates questions, but sometimes those questions lack answers. This is meant to cause you to fear God. So for now, what do you do? Enjoy life. Enjoy every day as the every day. We, we enjoy every day in this uncertain life as a gift from God. Let the coffee be what it is. A simple pleasure from God. Let the friend be what they are, a current companion to help you navigate a messy and complex world. Let nature 
be what it is, a glimpse of the one who created it and an opportunity to enjoy him. Let your job be what it is, a chance to work for him, to be productive, to be generous, to be a provider. Let the meal be what it is, a moment of joy with friends in an otherwise chaotic world. Zach S. Wynas says again, pray, eat, drink, enjoy your family, notice the sun, take pleasure in his gifts. God is near. You don't know this, what season is to come, but you do know God is good and God is in control. Therefore, find enjoyment in the small pleasures that he gives you. Next heading, which is actually tied to this one, or is maybe a subheading of this. I just wanted to single it out. Next heading, the unselfish duty of man. The unselfish duty of man. I'm only going to just hit this one briefly. I, don't, I just don't want us to miss. There's an added dimension here in chapter 3 that's not in chapter 2. There's an added piece to, the, to one of these so-called carpe diem texts. So verse 12, again, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and... To do good as long as they live. Enjoy life and do good. So there's that added dimension. So we don't just soak up all the small joys in life that God has given us. We also channel that joy to others. We see this throughout Scripture. Psalm 34, 14. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Psalm 37, 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. You can just go on and on. What does the Lord require us, Michael 6, 8, to do good? So what do we do when life doesn't make sense? Think about it. What do we do when life doesn't make sense, when we can't fully comprehend the seasons? We face all things, the good, the bad, the in-between. We do so with confidence because we know the good providence of God. We enjoy His gifts, big and small. And we do good to others, inviting them into that. We, we've not really touched on how relational most of this is. How relational most of Ecclesiastes is. How relational most of these gifts are. How big a factor relationships are in the seasons of life. The, so this is an important, added, an important added factor. Yes, we embrace the gifts, but we lean into the unselfish duty to do good to others. I don't think this is intuitive. This is not the conclusion we come to when we think about life. It's not really intuitive or natural for human beings to sort of go, okay, life is messy, life is broken, life is mysterious, life is confusing, life is fleeting, and conclude, you know what I need to do? I need to do some good to others. That's, that's not natural. You look at it and you want to despair or you say, just live it up. Who cares? But this is God's design. This is God's design. No, God is, God is telling us, no, you don't understand it all. You are not in control of it all, but enjoy it, enjoy it and do good to others. That, that's God's design. You don't understand it. You're not in control of it, but do good and enjoy it. Obviously, doing good, that, that's a big category. We're not going to chase that down today, but the Bible gives plenty of attention to that. We did an entire sermon series on what it means to love your neighbor as you love yourself. That'd be a good place to start if you're like, I don't know what it means to do good. We've got a whole sermon series on loving your neighbor as loving yourself. Or just read the Bible. You know, it's kind of everywhere. Go to the New Testament, read the Gospels. 
find a lot there. Next heading, and this seems like a bit of a curveball heading here, or just the text seems to throw a curveball. Next, we have the complete justice of God. The complete justice of God. So this is the end of verse 15, moving into verse 16. So the phrase at the end of verse 15, and God seeks what has been driven away. So a lot of people see that as a transition to the topic of justice, which is picked up in verse 16, the judgment of God. And verse 15 is, is just talking about those that have been driven away or more generally This seems to be a better understanding of the end of verse 15. God will bring to account all that is past. So everything matters. Past, present, future. God's going to, he's going to go back. He's going to pull it all in and say it all matters. All of life matters because all of life will be taken into account by God. All of it matters because judgment is coming. According to verse 16, there is injustice on earth. In verse 17, God will bring about justice. There is a time coming for every matter and for every work. Now, what's the point of this and how is it tied to what we just looked at or what comes before in chapter 3? Well, in one sense, it comes off like the first objection to the preacher's previous points. Think about it like this and how someone might respond. So they're listening to the preacher. So you're saying God is in control. You're saying God is good. And that even though we don't understand life, we should enjoy it and do good to others. You're saying seasons are going to come. Some are going to be hard. Some of them are going to be great. God's in control. I can't control any of that. But I'm just supposed to enjoy life and do good. To which the preacher says, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And then you get the rebuttal. What about injustice in the world? How can I believe in a good sovereign God that's controlling all of this? How can I enjoy this life that he's given me if there's so much injustice around me? Which is a great question. It's a great question. You'll see another rebuttal next week in chapter four in this matter of oppression. For now, the preacher makes a simple point. If that's the rebuttal, the simple point is no injustice will ultimately go unattended, past, present, or future. As Gibson says on this point, all the events of human history that have been chased away into the past, and to us they are gone and lost forever, but not to God. He will dial back time and fetch the past into his present to bring it to account. A longing for justice is hardwired into who we are as image bearers of God. The world is not meant to be the way it is when it comes to justice. And we know it. The preacher is saying God will retrieve every single injustice. Every single time. In every single activity. One author says, every single deed that has ever broken his holy law and tarnished his beautiful world and damaged his image bears, every one of those moments will be answerable to God. Every tear and every sighing sorrow will, for my, for wrongs, whether through things I have done or had done to me, each one will be sought out by God who is perfect justice, truth, mercy, and love. Final heading for the day, last part of the text. Seeing the rhythmic design of God, the good providence of God, the profound gift of God, the unselfish duty of man, and the complete justice of God. Finally, let's look at the inevitable end of man. 
the inevitable end of man. The preacher takes us back to the topic that he will not let us escape from, which is death. Again, if you don't like hearing about death, talking about death, thinking about death, Ecclesiastes is not the book for you. Verse 18 gives us somewhat of a of a reason that all of this is happening. There, there are seasons we don't fully comprehend. There are things that we are not in control of. Evident, uh, injustice is evident in the world. Verse 18 says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them. He's testing them in all of this. That they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Then he goes on to say that we end up in the same place as the beast. Dust. From dust we came, to dust we return. Philip Ryken, I think he's helpful here. He says, our present existence is a proving ground. It's a test. Not simply in the sense of something we pass or fail, but also in the sense of something that demonstrates our true character. One of life's purposes is to examine and ultimately to reveal our true relationship to God. This text is not for God's benefit as if there were anything about us that he doesn't know, but for our benefits so that we would recognize our mortality. So verse 21 seems to indicate that the preacher doesn't know what happens to man after he dies or if anything happens. That can't be the case because he would contradict what he says elsewhere. You go to verse, go to chapter 12, you read there and you, and you read here and you go, okay, well that's a contradiction. Well, he's not contradicting himself. His point is experience and observation doesn't help here. From a human standpoint, experience and observation says a dead man and a dead animal end up saying dust, ground. Plus, verse 21 is posed as a question, but it's more of a statement. That word weather really throws us off. It should read, who knows that the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes to the earth? Who by observation knows this? This is something that we can't experience. Something experience can't tell us. Something science can't test and prove. Only revelation can answer this question. From a human point of view, we don't know. But from a divine point of view we are told look at the end of the text who can bring him to see what will be after him you know who can bring him to see god god can reveal to you what will come after you the confusing mysterious fleeting seasons of life and our lack of control over them the injustice of the world is meant to help you to see your creatureliness your mortality your finiteness it's meant to help you to see that one day you will die it's meant to help you to see that there is a time to die and it's coming for every single one of us and just like you had zero control over the time you were born You have no control over the time you will die. For the unbeliever, this poses a a bit of a sobering question. Are you ready to die? Poses that question for everybody, really. Are you ready to die? It's coming. Are you ready? The Bible would present two options when it comes to death. According to this text and the rest of the Bible, judgment comes for everyone. Everything will be brought into account. Both the righteous 
and the way everybody's coming, everybody's going to be judged. And that event can go one of two ways. Either, you know, Jesus and it goes well or you don't. And it does not go well. Judgment is coming for everyone. But God has provided a way through it. And that way is a person, Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. It's only that that provides the satisfaction of God's judgment. As the great song says, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ. I live. So there's a question there. Are you alive in Christ? Have you met him? Have you come to know him? Are you trusting him? Are you following him? Are you ready to die? If you want to talk further about that, I would love to after the service. That's a good question to make sure you know the answer to. Are you ready to die? This text is clear. There are seasons for everything. There are times for everything. You think about it too, just how the Lord is in his good providence, how he ordains the time. The New Testament makes clear that just that at just the right time Christ died for the ungodly is now the time for you to know that and to submit to that. For the believer, I think he's making the same point he's already made in just a different way. Note that the text ends with another exhortation to rejoice in your work for this is your lot. I like how Zach S.Y.N. puts this. He says, in any given season, we are tempted to imagine, think, speculate, meditate on, worry about, and mull over everything that we do not know about the times in which we find ourselves. The preacher says that the way forward in our seasons is not found in rehearsing what we don't know, but remaining faithful with what we do. As believers, we don't spend time speculating about the end. We live our lives based on what we know, enjoying the good gifts that are in front of us, and trusting that God's going to help us to navigate whatever season is next. I'm out of time, so I'm going to end with a phrase. I love this by Lloyd-Jones. So Martin Lloyd-Jones, he used to end his pastoral prayers with this phrase. And I think this accords with what we cover today. He says, and may the triune God abide with us throughout the remainder of this short, uncertain, earthly life and pilgrimage. And I'll add to that. May he help us to know him, follow him, and enjoy him along with the good gifts he has given us. I think that's sufficient for one day. Let's pray and anticipate what the Lord has for next week. Father, we are thankful for your word that helps us to know, that teaches us, instructs us. There are seasons. There are many seasons, often unexpected seasons, seasons we have little to no control over. And we need wisdom to know that, and then we need wisdom to navigate life in the midst of those. So help us by your spirit to receive this word that there are seasons and we are not in control of them. But at the same time to know that you are good and you are in control. Give us the enjoyment of whatever is in front of us, whether it's a good cup of coffee, a conversation with a friend or a laugh with a child. Help us to enjoy it all and to glorify you as we do. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.